I'm going to put this down somewhere because I'm like Amy. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Okay, cool. I don't, can we, you want to turn it off or what? Okay, I'm going to set it right here. Anyway, my name is Mike McClellan, and uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, when Les asked me to speak here, uh, you know, I'm sort of a split personality. One side of me said, oh, hell yeah. And the other side of me said, hell no. You know what I mean? I don't want but, uh, but that's, you know, I have learned to, you know, not say no. Sometimes it hurts, you know. But but uh, I showed up here, and uh, and and really, like uh, like Tony was saying, it's about service in this program. It really is, you know. You, you just do the things that you feel like you don't want to do. And eventually you find out you kind of like it, you know. At least I do, so it feels good afterwards. But um, you know, I start out saying uh, I've been uh, I've been sober for 18 years now, a little over January 8, 2004. Yeah. And uh, but let me let me put it this way: I haven't had a drink in in over 18 years. So I don't know if I've necessarily been sober. My first sponsor would probably argue with you about that. <laughs> but. Uh, but anyway, I'll give you an example. I'm wearing this tam. I, you know, I really don't like hats, but I'm only wearing it because I got a really shitty haircut up here. <laughs> and I was so much talking to myself, you know, or to this guy, this new barber, that I really forgot what he was doing. <laughs> he just butchered me, you know what I mean? So, because I love talking about myself. You know, that's the part of me that wants to show up here, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I also, I'm kind of like a self-centered and a, and a control freak. You know, uh, things I didn't realize till really, I, you know, a few years after I got sober, because I kept listening to what everybody was saying there. You know, and I knew there's some wisdom, and it was better sitting at home killing myself. You know, I was doing a pretty good job of that. But <clears throat> so, well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't always like that. I was a kid, and I was a pretty healthy kid. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, I grew up in a pretty decent family. You know, there's a little bit of a little bit of violence here. It's sort of a normal stuff. I imagine a lot of families have that kind of stuff going. Maybe, I don't know. But uh, I, I'll start at the beginning, really. I, uh, I was born on an American Air Force base in, in Burtonwood, England. My mom was English and my dad was in the Air Force. So. <clears throat> and I flew over here. Uh, you know, they brought me over here when I was six weeks old. And, uh, you know, in Dora, I'm bewitched. I got to sit in her lap, you know, as the actress. And wow. That's sort of my claim to fame. <laughs> but uh, my dad grew up here in Glendora. And, uh, and we, this is where I grew up here all my life, you know, except for the times when I left here. But I, I could never leave, you know, completely. I, this is my home. This is where I really always come back to, you know. But, um, yeah, so I got here and just, it was, like I said, a normal, sort of a normal uh, childhood. My parents divorced when I was five, though. And, uh, and I had a stepdad. He was a blessing, you know. Uh, you know, uh, I don't really remember too too much uh, about my real dad, and there was a lot of issues going on there. So, and I actually have a, not a, a strong memory of, of my life between like five and ten years old, maybe a few kind of kind of ugly images, you know. But and uh, life kind of rolled on, and you know, I just hung out with all the kids, did what kids did here in the '60s, growing up. You know, I was born in 1955, and. Uh, and uh, I just loved it here. I started noticing when I started going to school, you know, especially in high school, that uh, I felt I didn't fit in. But, you know, it's like I said, I'm going to try to tell the truth, you know, another character defect of mine, you know, <laughs> you know, that I reluctantly gave up, you know. And uh, if I didn't have a higher power, somebody was mentioned a little while ago, if it wasn't for Tony, if I, you know, if it wasn't for me learning to and, and you know, and working hard to develop that uh, 
relationship with a higher power, I, you know, maybe I would probably still be drinking. You know, I was willing to listen to what anybody said when I got here. You know, they said if you're willing to go to any lengths, then I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm like I'm said, I'm sitting home killing myself. I was, uh, I know it's an outside issue, but you know, I was, I was drinking like the last four years. You know, I was drinking like one of those big giant bottles of Jack Daniels every day and putting meth in my arm and stuff, and and it wasn't working out too good for me. You know, I was trying to run a small trucking company that I that I managed to, uh, you know, build when I was, you know, last time I was in yeah, the last time I was in jail. But uh, so I spent 30 years driving trucks, but that's later on. I'll, I'll jump back. So I grew up around here, went to high school. Uh, Char Oak High School, I graduated in 72, a little bit early, because, you know, I, I, mean, I thought it was smart, and they let me get away with that, and uh, went to Mount Sac for a while, and I, then I dropped out of there because, uh, because I was drinking too much, you know what I mean? I actually showed up to Cal Poly to take an entrance exam, and I was in a blackout, I didn't realize it until later, and they sent me a letter saying, well, you know, you did real good on the math, and I wasn't good at math, but you did shitty on the English, and, and I was pretty good at English, so... But they said you came up the last day and you were drinking, so we're really not going to, you know, put you ahead of other people just because you scored higher. So they said, go to Mount Sac. And I said, oh, okay. And there was a guy there, used to be my swim coach at, in high school, and he said he went from Cal Poly over to uh, Sac just to, you know. So a lot of people in my life have done that. I believe. They, uh, they were there for me even when I wasn't there for myself. You know what I mean? And my selfish uh, side didn't recognize it. You know, and I, it, it, but you know, after years of sobriety, I do see where uh, where my interpretation of the world was a whole lot different than what was really going on. And, uh, yeah, and, and I learned this, you know, from uh, from what they say: take the cotton out. Let me get this right now, okay? Take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth, okay? So, <laughs> so I really did learn how to do that. Like I said, when I first got here with the sick, lame, and lazy, and uh, and I fit right in, sick, lame, and lazy. So, and that is the story. I mean, I worked hard all my life, but there's a, that, that's a side of me that's really lazy, you know what I mean? Gets me in a lot of trouble. But uh, after I graduated high school, you know, uh, I, uh, I, well, I got a, I was working at a thoroughbred farm. My dad kept me all busy out in Chino, second largest thoroughbred farm in the world. And, and he would never let me sit around and do anything, you know, you know get away with not doing anything. So he'd drop me out of there on weekends and holidays, summer vacations, and whenever all the other kids were having fun, I was like shoveling shit and, excuse my language, you know what I mean? And uh, and feeding horses and going to the racetrack and walking, you know, show horses and stuff at the O2 sales. I was an industrious little kid, bought a pickup truck at 16, and it was on then. 16 years old, little money in my pocket, working, you know, uh, walking horses at the racetrack. Uh, you know, I, like they say, giving alcoholic money might be the worst thing you can do for them, right? So, uh, and I was irresponsible in that way. I just drank, 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 and, you know, rolled a few cars. And, uh, and then a time came, <clears throat> I was about 18, I, uh, I bailed a friend out of jail, you know, and, uh, and I put my car up, and I put, you know, a bunch of money up, and, you know, I even stole a riding saddle from my dad, and, uh, and the son of a bitch said, excuse me, I keep cussing, the guy didn't show up, you know, and, uh, and so, I, and, and my logic reason told me, well, you know, don't carry on, don't keep going. Just uh, do something drastic in your life. So I decided I'd join the Army, you know, not because I'm really patriotic or anything, but I couldn't pay the rent, you know, and I uh, had no money, and I was just uh, walking across the street late at night, drunk as hell, and I said, I think I'll join the Army. The next day, I went down and joined the Army. Boom. A couple days later, I'm in Fort Knox, Kentucky, you know, 
And these guys thought that I was really, you know, that, you know, 16 weeks I was there, they thought that I was special and I, sh I should be able to have my own room and tell all these people what to do, you know what I mean? And I didn't want that. I just want people to leave me alone, you know, but they, they wanted me to be, you know, some sergeant before I was even out of basic training, so. And uh, I, I went along with it because I thought, well, they'll beat the shit out of me if I don't. So, um, so you know, everything was really good. You know, I enjoyed being in the Army, although I got letters, you know, you know, my mom, my mom read letters from me when I was in the Army saying that you were anything but happy, you know, but, but I went along, you know, and I, I even extended in basic for a year, so I was in for four years, and they sent me over to Germany, and it was on. I, I, anybody's ever lived in Germany before? Oh, the booze over there is fantastic, and, but we were like downrange 10 months out of the year, and, uh, you know, just, you know, shooting and shooting and shooting, and, uh, Toting ammo everywhere. I was a, a scout, you know, and, a, and an armored personnel carrier. So we were always on the Czechoslovakian border doing border guard. But they would let us off a couple months out of the year back at the, you know, back at the in the rear, they call it. And you could really get in trouble then, you know. And, and I did, you know, uh, got arrested two or three times. And, and they put up with me. And then I asked to rotate in the back Fort Knox, I mean, uh, at uh, Fort uh, Carson in Colorado. And I decided I'd met my, uh, well, she kind of sort of tracked me down. She was a, 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 a nice lady that I dated in high school. She was beautiful, and I was like, ah, you know what I mean? I didn't know how to handle it. I was too young to know. I'm just thinking about myself all the time. Totally inexperienced with that stuff like love and everything. So uh, I ended up marrying her because she asked me to. And, uh, and you know what that's all about, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was way out of my league on this thing. You know what I mean? I was like, uh, I was uh, way over my head. And uh, it lasted a couple years, and I just drank, 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 drank. Got out of the army. They decided that uh, they uh, they said they liked the idea that I liked to fight, but I was fighting the wrong people. You know, I was like fighting them. You know, <laughs> instead of fighting these other guys. So uh, so I I agreed, and they gave me a general under honorable conditions. You know, and uh, and they said, you know, you just drink too much, leave. You know, we won't get you in trouble. So I did. And I got out, and uh, and I and I found the place, all the jobs that you can get where. And we divorced after two years, and it was kind of amicable. So, um, so I started working like in construction, you know, because everybody drinks in construction. This is, I mean, it was really great, you know. And uh, you know, th that was for OSHA movie. And I was in the plastering trade as a hot carrier. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with exterior plastering where they blow that stuff on the wall. Well, uh, you know, I. Um, I was good at it, really good hot care, but I was drinking way too much and, yeah, I was doing all that stuff way too much. And I started going to jail a whole lot. Then I met my soon-to-be second hostage, you know, my, uh, my second wife, Laura, and uh, we shared a lot together just about the right things, you know. We were, like, you know, dealing drugs and all kinds of stuff. So I, you know, as I put, and she had kids, it was really, it was really embarrassing. I, it's one of the things that's on my four-step because... I remember one time I got raided, and she had, like, toddlers, you know, when I met her. And they all come walking out, and they had cameras and the sheriff's and guns and everything. And they were, they were like, uh, you know, he comes walking out of the room, the oldest, he's like seven or eight, and he goes, are we on TV, Daddy? And I thought, wow. You know, I mean, I think back on that. All the danger I put people in, you know, like little kids and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, so, uh, like I say, me and my second wife had a, a lot in common. But when we stopped doing, you know, the, the drug stuff, and, and uh, I was still drinking because I you know, always thought drinking, 
Nothing wrong with that. Hard day's work. You don't deserve to have a drink. I heard my mom say that about my dad. At the same time, she would come at him with a club and try to beat him up for it, you know? So, who knows? You know, it's a little bit confusing in there. But, um, yeah, so I, I really quit drinking, sort of. I mean, I quit drugging. You know, I know this is AA. But I quit that stuff in about 1989, you know? And I decided I'm going to do like that. Well, I didn't know at the time it's called geographical. I'm going to get the heck out of Dodge. You know, I got out of jail just in a year for a violation, you know. So I get out of jail, and uh, I become a truck driver. And they didn't have computers, so they didn't know who was in jail, who wasn't. So, you know, I got a good job with a, place, you know, a company called Missouri-Nebraska Express. And they, they put this alcoholic in, a, in an 18-wheeler and let him drive all over the freaking country for years, afraid that I was going to, you know, be called to go to Canada. They would, uh, the, you know, cat me out of the bag. But I did good. I mean, it was really amazing. I put my, uh, I put myself uh, to the test. I managed to, um, I managed to actually within a couple years of, of, of getting out of jail, I managed to uh, buy a house, buy my own truck, and uh, put money in the bank. But I was still drinking. I was gone all the time, so it wasn't a good deal. I was gone like a month and a half, two months at a time, and uh, and the wife got tired of that, you know. So things went on till uh, no for about. 10 years. We got married somewhere along the line. So we got uh, we got divorced in 1999, you know. So I let her keep everything, and I uh, the house and all that stuff, which is almost paid off. And I just wanted my truck, you know, because that was my haven. That's where I went, you know. That's my bottle, in a sense, you know. That's where I go because I don't get along with people. And, you know, it, for me, it worked for years. I just, I'm in a truck driving around all the time. I don't have to talk to anybody. I can say, oh, I didn't have John talk, you know, stop it get in a phone booth and stuff. So I was in hog heaven. It worked for a long time. You know, for a person who likes to isolate, it's really beautiful. I mean, it's an excuse. You know, you can get away with it. I, I remember I'd be home, I'd be out for a month and a half, two months. I'd come home for three or four days. On like the third or fourth day, the, the wife would say, well, you know, water heater needs to, gotta go, see you later. You know, <laughs> you know, work's calling. You know, I leave it all on her. And which I did a lot of that. I dumped a lot of my responsibilities on people because I just love living all alone in my in my truck. And uh, and uh, eventually I moved back into town here. So I was interstate trucking, and that was in Williams, Arizona, where I was living. So I um, I moved back here, and then of course you know I uh, well I got into the sand and gravel business, which my dad was introduced. So I'm I'm living in a little apartment right off uh, Glendora Avenue and Alasta or Route 66 down there. And um, and I'm, you know, I'm working local in the, in the, you know, semi-end dumps and stuff, 18-wheel dump trucks. And, uh, and some of the people I knew that I grew up with started coming around, you know. I even put aluminum foil on my, on my windows so people wouldn't know I was there, but it doesn't stop some people, you know. So, so um, you know, and I wouldn't answer the door sometimes. I was glad when a month would go by and nobody would have, you know, because I had a lot of crap I was carrying around with me, you know what I mean? And I, I was embarrassed to talk to people. I really thought everybody had nothing better to do than think about me, you know. And uh, I wasn't too happy with myself at the time. And it all really started catching up to me all alone. I couldn't wait to get back to, you know, from work, go to my little, uh, you know, little apartment and drink this big bottle. And that was the last four years between 2000 or 1999 to 2004. And then, of course, I got hooked up with some guys that started doing this again. It really disappointed my stepdad, you know. I mean, he was okay with drinking, but that kind of monkey business is it's just not, it's not cool. It'll beat you up really hard. So, um, 2004, uh, January 8th, 
I was uh, I called up a broker's home a trader for it. You know, it was kind of raining outside. And I called, and I knew this broker all my life. You know, and he didn't want me. Him and, his, and my dad and other people didn't want me driving because they couldn't trust me. You know, I mean, I grew up in a family of truck drivers, and you know, uh, brokers used to be, play Santa Claus for me, and most of them drink too, but they didn't trust me, and, and that kind of hurt. You know, because I asked my dad. I spent years learning how to drive a truck and drive an interstate, and I thought, well, I've proved myself to these people. You know, and, and wow, you know. Um, not, not yet, really, not really. But um, so I, I, I sort of weaseled my way in. My dad retired in '72, and I jumped in his truck, used my license, and uh, and just went to work. And everybody sort of accepted me. But uh, here I am, around a bunch of guys who've been driving years and years. And I'm at the front of the line. I made enemies really bad. You know, I mean, there's like 15 other drivers, and I'm a, and I'm a, a drunk who stepped in my dad's position. And drivers can be vicious. So uh, they, they'll smile in front of you, but you know, but they're really not, they're really not on your side. So, so I, um, I drove for you know a good another four years with them, and um, and uh, finally I, I really had enough. You know, I mean, I woke up uh, one morning, I called that broker, and he said we're not working today. And I looked down, and uh, and I had about that much whiskey in that bottle. It was about four thirty in the morning. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't, maybe I don't need to drink. And I'm not a religious man, but uh, I, at least I never have been. But I found myself on my knees. It was like, where'd that come from? You know what I mean? And I'm like begging God, you know, to, to help me because I knew I was in trouble. You know, uh, you know, part of me really knew. And uh, it's the most earnest, honest thing I've ever done in my life was to say that prayer. I've never meant anything more. And, uh, and I got up and went in the other room. I remember looking up the ceiling. I was thinking, uh, I said to myself, you know, hey, God, you know, uh, please help me find some people who understand me. And that's, that's what I said to God looking up there. And I didn't believe in God. But, uh, and I found out later, you know, um, uh, you know, I couldn't find my rear end with both hands. And somehow I managed to find an AA you know, and, uh, and it was really strange. And there was a guy named Don. I forget what the lady's name was who also worked with Don. It was just within walking distance apartment here, the, the same Gabriel Valley, uh, you know, uh, central office, but I decided to drive at 4.30 in the morning. I was drunk. I was going to drive. You know, I did. I got this little apartment, you know, because it was a bar, 121 feet from my apartment, and, and a liquor store 172 feet away from it. You know, it was all planned out, too, so I wouldn't have to drive, but what do I do? I drive anyway, right? So drove down to central office, and he turned me on to a couple places I could go, and uh, that was on a Thursday, and they, they, they told me about the other club. You know, and uh, and I showed up there, and there was a guy out in the park. I'm not going to say his name. I love this man, but uh, the, he was the first guy I ever saw in AA, and uh, Howard. So, <laughs> so I see him out front, and I said, I said, you know, um, I said to myself, you know, I said, uh, oh, these are the kind of people I'm going to, you know, these are the people God sent me. I'm, I'm screwed, you know. <laughs> so I went into the other club, and uh, and I sat down. I, you know, I was like still hallucinating and stuff like this. And, uh, and I thought, that's okay, I'll do another one. He gave me two meetings. I went up to, like, Ruggles and Baseline later that night. And I'm like, the whole reason I really wanted to do this is because I, I wanted to stop. I wanted to take that needle out of my arm because I was afraid I was going to lose my job. But I'm sitting there listening to these guys talk in this meeting. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, I think I'm an alcoholic. That's my real problem. And it really is my problem. It always has been. I throw that other stuff away, but I've never had a reason in my head to throw alcohol away. 
But I, uh, so I remember during break time, we went outside and I was talking to some of the guys, you know, and, and I said, well, you know, you think I could, uh, like, slam speed and still come to these meetings? <laughs> he said, well, it really doesn't work like that, you know what I mean? You know, but, but in the heart of it, what I really wanted to do, and this is part of that prayer that I said when I was looking up there, you know, God, you know, help me find some people to understand me. I made up my mind that uh, that it, it wouldn't have been good enough to quit drinking. What I needed to do is change who I was, you know. And uh, and I recognized it was looking in the mirror and seeing this guy that's like 300 something pounds. His eyes are all yellow and his skin's yellow. Going to the hospital across the street, 175 feet away, so I could get hooked up to IVs and stuff. So, you know, and then the doctors would laugh at me when I asked for painkillers because my kidneys hurt and stuff. That's what it's like being an alcoholic. Where you're gonna, you know, so. Um, so, uh, I don't know, I, uh, <laughs> I wanted to change who I was, and I realized I had some really embarrassing behavior. Some of them, I, I'll tell you, and some of them I really won't. I mean, it took me a long time to tell my first sponsor about some of this stuff. But, uh, I mean, I had stupid stuff that I could share easily and sort of get the weight off. But, uh, I mean, just as an example, I remember one time, excuse me, I'm like, um, it's like 1.30 in the morning. I'm at the Rouse down there, and they have uh, these big bottles of Jack Daniels on sale. I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go down there because they're still on sale, and I only have about that much left in the bottle. I don't know if it'll make it till morning. I was like, well, Friday night, I have to work the next day. So I go down, and I'm waiting in line, and uh, it, it ticks up to 2 o'clock, and I didn't know it. So I got up there, and the lady in the cash register says, you know, uh, we can't sell this to you. And I go, why not? You know, I can't sell me booze. And she said, well, it's after 2 o'clock. I, I start screaming and yelling at her because... You know, I mean, you know, I was here before 2 o'clock. I'm standing in line. She goes, well, I just can't sell it to you. And then I realized I'm standing there in nothing, nothing but these orange boxers, uh, fluorescent orange boxers and a cat in the head. I do not wish to fall. That's all I had on. In public, you know what I mean? And screaming and yelling at the lady because she wouldn't give me the, my booze, you know? And there's a lot of things that I've you know, never been arrested for that I should have been. Thank God they didn't catch me. Or you got my fourth step would be really, really bad, you know what I mean? But that's just a, a one of a million things that I've done. And, and to this day, it kind of haunts me. Because, you know, I mean, I, you know in, I've been sober a while, and I've learned to hold my head up high. But there are times when I, I'll dodge somebody that's coming at me, and I think they know something about me, and I, and I just can't handle it, you know what I mean? And, uh, but, I mean, I'm a lot better than I used to be 18 years ago, but uh, there's some things that are just so embarrassing that, you know, I won't even argue and fight about it. I'll just walk away, you know, and that used to be my MO. It was terrible, man. You know, walk away and get my truck and take off. But I, uh, <clears throat> so many of these guys at that meeting up at Ruggles, they suggested, I guess I was eyeballing some women and stuff like this, you know. And they said, you know what, we know a, re a really good meat is probably good for you. It's called the sick, lame, and lazy. It's a stag meat. And I go, what the hell is that? You know, and, uh, and I said, a stag meat, that piqued my interest. You must be special meat or something. So they, and they, they told me about it, and I showed up the next day, and uh, it was great. I, I walked in, and everybody shook my hand, and I was the most angry person in the world. There's guys today still saying they've never seen anybody angrier than me when I first got here. I mean, I, I'd be, you know, the first 30 days, 60 days, I'd be sitting there, you know, watching people when you went I'm sharing, and somebody be talking to somebody else, and like, the hell are you talking about, you know? <laughs> like, different people would look at me. I did that to Bob Devine one time. He was like, oh, you know? I'd be standing outside, people would stand about an arm's length away from me when they were talking during break, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean you know, I, I didn't recognize all this stuff. 
But then after about 30 days or so, uh, you know, I, I got better after a while. But after about 30 days, well, excuse me, a guy named Richard Cheney came up to me as my first sponsor, asked me um, if I wanted to uh, have him be my sponsor. And I didn't even know what a sponsor was. I heard people talking all these things. I knew somehow they made sense. One day at a time, you know, uh, all these kind of things. They made sense to me, but I didn't know why. But uh, it made sense to me to say yes to this guy. And then he, uh, and I, and I, I heard later that all the sickest people, not that I'm the sickest person, but all the sickest people seem to gravitate toward Richard Cheney. You know? So I end up uh, with Richard Cheney, and, you know, some of the wisest things. Oh, and by the way, Howard was great. I remember, uh, you know, I met Howard later at Sick, Lame, and Lazy. Fell in love with the man. And he, like, um, uh, I remember one time the guys used to tell me, hey, you know what, uh, you should give Howard a ride home because he doesn't have a car. And, and I did it, I did it for, like, maybe four or five times and stuff. And then I come up to some of the guys afterwards and I said, uh, I said, you know, uh, that guy ain't right. You know I mean? Why do I have to get him rides home? You know, he's just, you know, there's something wrong with that guy. And I, I got 30 days sober, right? And, uh, and, uh, and I remember some of the guys said, well, you know, how long have you been sober? And I go, 30 days. And they said, well, how long has he been sober? And I go, 32 years, I think. And I said, well, <laughs> okay, you know what I mean? Yeah, obviously you know something you don't, you know. And and then there was times I'd ride I'd ride home with. I remember the first time he said, "I should think you badly." And then so he said something that just straight up made me sit up. Made my and I said, "God, that guy knows what he's talking about. He knows how to stay sober. He really does." And uh, we became friends. And uh, he's lost to uh, the world somewhere. I haven't been able to talk to him in a long time. I don't know where he is. I wish I knew. But um, he helped me be sober. Everybody in this program helped me be sober. I kept coming back, and they told me to keep coming back. And I did because, you know, I felt safer in these meetings than I did at home. I mean, that first 30, 60 days, I would sit at home and, and listen to uh, voices, you know, and, uh, and see things on the ground, you know, moving around and stuff like this. And those voices sometimes would just, oh, you know. And uh, I'd, be, I'd be honest with you, I was kind of scared. But over the years, I learned how to, uh, you know, with the help of everybody in the program, sick and lazy, I learned really how to take a more honest look at myself. Not always easy. Even to this day, it's not always easy. But uh, it wasn't until maybe five or six years ago I started rolling this uh, word around called trust. And I didn't know why it happened. You know, and it just popped into my head one day. And, it's, and I started realizing the, the significance of it, you know, in, in regards to a higher power. You know, because um, even up to the point when I was 12, 13, 14 years sober, I still didn't understand the whole concept of, of trusting in a higher power. I mean, I was still operating on ego to a large degree. I had been sober for quite a while, but not really. And uh, I still had a lot of anger in me, but I learned how to suppress it. Probably not a good idea. But um, And then Richard eventually passed away. I remember a, a, a thing he used to tell me once in a while. I'd call him and yell at him for, you know, five minutes, maybe minutes. After I was done, he'd say, you know what? You're exactly what God wants you to be. You know, for some reason, that just calmed me down. You know, I just really loved it when he said that. And, uh, you know, and, and we worked steps, went about the deal. And then he uh, he passed away about six, seven years ago. And then uh, I chose another man to be my sponsor. His name was Bill Wilson. I imagine a lot of people know Bill Wilson. He was really hooked in to, to the AA community. He loved it. He loved the people. And, and I loved being with him because... Uh, well, he told me one day, well, he looked exactly like my real dad, and he laughed like him. It was almost like a, like a reincarnation of my dad. It was like, it, it, And we used to laugh about that, and we used to laugh about the fact that he shared so many of my character defects. 
And it, uh, that was lovely to have a sponsor that wasn't, you know, he was serious about the program, but I could laugh with him. And, and I, I got to tell you, folks, I haven't laughed in years. Like when I first came to, you know, the meetings, they, they said I was the most angry guy. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I was. I mean, I was just, I, I mean, everybody was out to get me. You know what I mean? I didn't get over that for a long time. Probably took two or three years. But uh, Bill Wilson was great. I only, uh, I was only able to keep him for about three or four years, and then he passed away. And then uh, God's blessed me so much, and I, I don't even realize the blessings that I've gotten from God, you know, until time, until I look back and, and, and see how my life rolled out. You know, uh, I wouldn't have found it if it wasn't for, it wasn't for God, you know. Uh, couldn't have found my, like I said, my butt with both hands. And I realize, I look back at how everything just, despite myself, I always ended up where I was supposed to be, to stay sober. All I had to do is want to keep coming back, you know. And then, um, and then I, I waited for two or three months, you know, because, you know, my head's running and I can do this by myself. But who needs spots? I may have to tell him something, you know what I mean? He may ask me to work a four-step, you know, and, and all that stuff that your head tells you when, you know, when, you, when you're an egomaniac. And, uh, but then I finally said I better go get it because, you know, my head's running away from me. So I can only think of one guy, and there's my sponsor right there. I don't know if he minds me saying so. It's Bob Garcia, and uh, we click, you know, and uh, and he's, he's kind of like Richard in a way, and kind of like Bill Wilson in a way. He, he always says the right thing whenever I hear, hear the right thing, you know. And uh, so that's kind of like where I am right now. Somewhere along the line, I, I had a knee replacement about six years ago, and I was living in a little apartment down here, and uh, I felt kind of dejected. You know, because I really wanted to go back and drive in the truck, and the Social Security said, I was 61, they said, forget it, go do something else. You're never going to be uh, a truck driver again, you know. And I was kind of depressed about that, but that's that's where I go to hide. You know, so I had to join the real world. I decided to go back to school, and, and my mom calls me on the phone. I'm 61. She says, come up, take care of me. I think I'm dying. She had a real nice home up in Asperia. And I said, okay, well, you know, I, I have no, nothing else to do. Why sit down here? I went up to take care of her. Now, I used to get along with her okay, but when I moved up there, boy, I think a lot of it had to do with me. You know, 61 years old, been with your mom, you know. You know, I'm so secure. I felt like, well, I was thinking about me, of course, all the time, right? And, uh, and I missed the whole opportunity to really get closer to her. And we argued and screamed and yelled. And then, lo and behold, she died when she said she was going to. And uh, we never resolved the things when I, that I... That I I wished I would have, but you know, that's not the way to do it. You can't look back and say, I wish I would have done that. It's, it's worthless kind of thought, and it can only defeat you and hurt you. But it, I grew a lot out of that, and I realized that, uh, you know, I um, I got to get out of my head. You know, I got to talk to people even when I think I don't need to. And I wasn't going to the program, but I was going to school. I was going to school because I was going to get on my white horse and save the world and be a counselor. Uh, so I uh, started out, I, I went, went to school, and, and I, I dropped out of Mount Sac, and I, but I always wished I would have completed math classes and stuff, just to prove I could do it. And I did. I got all A's. It was just amazing. I've gotten all A's except for one B. I don't know call it that. She was in a, in a, 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 what do you call it, a, a public speaking class. She gave me a B. I had an 89. I was really pissed at her because I had all A's and everything I did. I, I got an associate's. Went down to San Bernardino Valley and got, uh, you know, completed my certificate for alcohol substance abuse. I've been interning at a place, uh, first of all, for seven or eight months. I went out of business called Pine Ridge up in uh, up in the high desert. Then I jumped over an outpatient clinic uh, in in Hard Victorville. I've been there for about seven months, so I have about another 
five, six hundred hours, and you know, I can take the state exam. Whoopee, you know, but the whole thing is that I don't know if I want to be a counselor. It's not what I thought it was going to be, you know. I mean, I'd rather be a security guard, to be honest with you. <laughs> and that's the truth. You know what I mean? I just want to sit there. I just want to sit there and watch a building or something and get some money and go home. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to write reports and, and you know, and, and it's just paper. You know, my you know what I mean? I'm, I'm too self-centered still this day to be of help to anybody, really. I feel comfortable in, a, in an AAP. And I promised a guy who's, who's struggling with opiates today, he said, I'll go to the meeting if you do. And I said, well, I can't really sit here and tell this guy that, you know, to go to AA meetings or NA meetings if I'm not willing to go myself. So um, so here I am, back back to going to meetings again. So I, I've, only, I've been down like one meeting a month, two meetings a month or something. Now, uh, I've been cornered by a guy who's struggling and needs some help. And that's service, right, Tommy? So, uh, you know, God has a funny way of manipulating me, even when I don't want to be a servant. He puts me in these places, so I'll open my big mouth, and next thing you know, I'm of service, you know. I, you know. So, um, that's where I am in my life right now. And, um, you know, I've had the ups and downs. I've had some, uh, I've been witness to some terrible things. So, uh, let's just leave it at that. And uh, I've learned how to keep a level head. I've learned how to, to turn it over, and I've learned how to, to talk to uh, to other members of uh, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and if it wasn't for that, some of these so-called terrible things that happened in my, in my life would uh, would probably trip me and, and send me right back out again. I've been fortunate. I've been blessed. You know, uh, I just keep a I read my Bible every morning. That's my higher power, and I uh, read a little few books here and there, and try to make meetings, and I try to out of my head. That's all I got. Thank you, Mike. How about a hand for Mike? Uh, for the record, my sponsor was uh, Richard Cheney as well, so I'll tell you where I'm at. Our next speaker is going to be uh, Bob Garcia. Hi, Bobby. My name is Bob Garcia. I'm alcoholic. Bob. And um, there's only one speaker usually, but he asked me to split it with him. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> actually, about a month ago, Les asked me to speak, but I, there was um, I think there was uh, Santa had a wind that night, and I had a cold, so I didn't want to do it. But um, Mikey asked me to split it with him. He said he, he wasn't sure he wanted to do it. Then I'll let do it, you know. So anyway, I'm glad I'm here tonight. I'm glad you guys are here. And um, I was thinking, you know, Tony and Mike sharing, that's a great night tonight here at the park. You know, I've only been here to this meeting a few times. First time was when Bob Bro spoke, you know. And um, that's good because I've seen him come in. I've seen him. I've known him for a long time as well, you know. And um, a few months ago, um, Dan Brownwood spoke. You know, I don't know who else was here, but... Um, and I've known him a while, too. I, mean, I used to um, go to meetings a lot with his dad, Bruce. Some of you guys know him, you know. Um, but, um, you know, and, um, tonight, you know, Mikey's sharing. I, me and Tony seen him come in, and um, I've been to that apartment he was talking about. That apartment was something else. I couldn't believe he was there. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to go in, you know. <laughs> but he, I needed to help him out with something, and I'm like, I need to get... 
you know, get out of here, you know. It's right there in between the Taco Bell, by the Taco Bell right there in the corner there, you know. Our place was that bar, you know. That's, oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the walking distance bar that he was talking about, you know. And, um, yeah, our place, you know. And, um, <laughs> that's it, huh? And I forget the name of that liquor store, H&I or something, you know? something like that. H&H, H &H. there you go. <laughs> but, um... I don't know, my experience, strength, and hope, you know, I guess is what I'm supposed to be here for 30 minutes or however long, and Mikey did good, 30 minutes on the money, you know what I mean? Yeah, right there, dude. I was hoping you'd go longer, but, um... <laughs> and by the way, Tony, before I tell you tomorrow, I was the one who told Fernando to have you lead, so <laughs> that was me. Anyway, um, you know, my experience, strength, and hope is, um, simply put, this program works, you know, that's it. This program works. I can't believe it. I've seen it in Mike. I've seen it, you know, other people. Sometimes I don't see it in myself. You know, but this program works well if you work it. And, um, I was 21 and a half years old when I made it here. And um, kind of like Mike was saying too, you know, I um, I was trying to get away from that other stuff I was dabbling in. You know, and um, even my family would rather see me drinking. You know. And, um, tell me just drink you know don't even do that other stuff you know and i'm, and I'm like uh, okay i'll try you know i'll try just drink <laughs> and it never ended up you know i get back into the other stuff too and um as far back as when i was 15 you know i was, I was coming out here i grew up in the philippines you know and um, i was my kind of my first geographic i was 15 i was coming out here to be reunited with my mom and um you know my dad told me before getting on the plane, you know, the night before or so, you know, just in case, you know, you feel like you get air sick, you know, I've never been on a plane at that time, you know, just get the barf bag in front of you, throw up there, and if you get nervous, you know, ask the stewardess for a drink, it's free, you know, whatever, and back then it was free, in the early 80s, you know, and, um, beer, little bottles of liquor, you know, and, um, and he said, but whatever you do, don't bring none of that other stuff on the plane, you get caught by the customs, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> I can't bail you out there, you know. And I and I followed him. It's order then. Because my friends were telling me, oh, no, here's how you do it. You know, this, my friends were telling me how to do that. You know, and I didn't. So anyway, that's my first geographic, you know. Or trying to get away from whatever I was dabbling with and drinking, you know. And I moved back east to my mom and my her new family. She had a new family in Pennsylvania. And I remember the first weekend we were there, there was a church fair, and we went to the church fair, and they had one of those big bouquet baskets of whatever, three, three tickets for a dollar, I remember, you know, like like a 50-50 raffle or whatever, but it's three tickets for a dollar, and it was full of um, liquor, liqueur, you know, and my mom said, yeah, you know, three tickets for a buck, here's a buck, go get that. And I said, no, I don't want, I don't want to waste a dollar on this, you know, raffle. No, go ahead, do it, do it. I'm like, no, nah, I don't want. And I hadn't seen my mom in nine years. You know, she left when I was six. She came out here, and I had one of those moms that, um, you know, just disappeared. Those four of us kids. So my dad kind of raised us. And um, anyway, I remember telling my mom, you know what? If I win that, I'm gonna drink it, okay? Everything. And she didn't know I could do it, you know? Or I, I was serious, maybe. I don't think my dad told her what was going on with me. Believe it or not, I won that bouquet in baskets, you know. And it was all a bunch of liquor that, you know, amaretto, all these things that I don't drink. I, I, I was into lick, hard liquor already. 
I think there was a couple of bottles of whiskey. That's about it, you know. And I would have too, but what was going through my mind then? And I had just moved into this town in a suburb of Philadelphia, and near the high school. And my stepdad was a teacher. I was thinking, you know what? I'm gonna hang around the parking lot, have a couple of these bottles, and trade it for some dope. <laughs> I'm 15. You know, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't do it. You know what I mean? Because my dad, like I said, my stepdad was teaching at that elementary school. I had two little sisters, half sisters. You know. But that's that's how I, you know, that's my my um. I remember too with my stepdad. He was cool. He's a nice guy. You know, and um. He didn't know that my mom had a family. <laughs> I felt bad for him. He passed away about ten years ago, and at that time, ten years ago, we were both like eye to eye. He was almost gonna tell me, "I'm glad that, that um, my dad was lucky to get away from my mom." <laughs> but, uh, I know it seems cold, but anyway, um, I remember telling my stepdad back then too. You know, I was reading the Popular Mechanics. You know, and at the back of it, there's you know, you can make you brew your own beer by the kit. <laughs> so I remember calling the number, you know, the COD, whatever, no checks. Or I had a little money, you know. I go, okay, can you deliver it? Oh, we need someone to sign it off. I go, okay. I asked my stepdad, hey, Russ, can you sign off? I'm, I'm having a kit delivered from Popular Mechanics. What is it? I can do it. Put it in the basement. You know how to brew your own beer. He goes, no, you're not getting that. You know? <laughs> That's it, you know. That, I, I don't know. He was a real nice guy, you know. He was—he helped me out a lot, you know. And um, and I stayed sober there for about a year or so, you know, till I saw where the smoke was coming from. And then I was graduating high school, and um, graduated high school there, and um, I was gonna join the service to the Navy, and not because I was patriotic either. <laughs> it's just a bunch of the guys I was running around with at that time was gonna join it, you know. And, um, and um, I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. Like, like we were ever gonna see each other once we went into boot camp, you know. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, I um, I didn't get to. No one signed my my name off. You know, I was under 17 and a half years old. I wasn't 18, and I was asking, you know, my mom, my dad, hey, can you? I want to join the navy. He goes, no, we're not joining the navy. You crazy? You're gonna get drunk, and you're gonna all over the. You know, I'll find me in the middle of the sea there. And um, so I, that didn't work out. I ended up going to college a little bit, and um, you know, I um, I tried to I tried to get into business school, and I was taking some accounting classes. I remember back then they had these big, you know, whatever paper to do the books or whatever, and I was just so wasted at one time, you know. I, I everything was just going crazy, you know, and um, I gave that up. Um, So um, around that time too, my grandma got sick, you know, and um, and um, my um, she was in a coma. They already gave her the last rites. We were in the room, and um, and um, my um, other family members were going up to her and kind of like promising her, you know, if you, you know, I don't know, praying something. I forget what they were doing. Just I know one of my aunts said, if you live through it, you know, told my grandma, her mom. She won't divorce her husband or something like that. It was stupid little things that they were doing. Then it was my turn, you know, and they're like, go up there, Bob, tell, you know, Grandma, would promise her something, kind of. And I didn't know what to say. He goes, tell her you're not going to do drugs anymore. I'm like, oh, shit, you know. And there was a bunch of family members, right, my cousins and stuff. We were just in a little hospital room. So I go up there and go, Grandma, I'm never going to use drugs no more. 
I know it's an AA meeting, but I'm sorry. I step out in the hallway there, and my oldest cousin, he was a few years older than me, goes, because he felt so bad for me that I had to do that, you know, in front of everyone. He goes, Bob, you know what? Yeah, just don't do that. Just drink. Just drink. You know what I mean? Don't, don't do that crap no more. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll just do that. <laughs> but still didn't work. You know, it still wasn't working. Um, it wasn't until I was some... Um, I guess 20 years old already, because um, that's when I first got my DUI down in West Covina. And um, a year later, within a year later, I got my second DUI. I was 21 and a half years old, and um, I didn't do nothing for my first DUI, so um, the judge didn't like it. Um, I ended up going straight to um, Wayside, and I, I was working at a uh, phone company back then already. I was there a few months the first time they popped me, about a year when the second time they popped me, I was still at that um, phone company. I remember calling my office, you know, Colette from jail. Hi, um, you know, I'm calling Colette. <laughs> it was the phone company. They knew what the deal was. <laughs> they knew I was incarcerated somewhere, you know, and I didn't care. So I told them, hey, I don't think I'll be able to make it, you know, the next couple days, tomorrow or whatever. For days to work, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm not able to, you know, so whatever. Yeah, and then when they were shipping me out, when they were shipping me to um, Wayside, you know, I get up to Wayside, and I called them again and go, I think it's going to be a little longer. I'm a little further. <laughs> and my family couldn't track me down either. They wanted to bail me out. The judge didn't want to give me bail, you know, and um, <laughs> that's just... I don't know. I couldn't believe. And the reason I got hired by the phone company a year or so before that was because I was going to be a scab. I didn't even know what that was. You know what I mean? I was going to. They hired a bunch of us to cross the picket line. And one of the things they were negotiated that they were able to get was the EAP and the drug rehab. You know, like a, oh, a the big program. book and the big book the, to employers basically. That's what it is. You know, mm -hmm. just so they would have that. And I didn't know. You know, somehow. When you're talking about it, you know, but for the grace of God, you know, I was there, I, even though I was crossing the picket line or whatever, in between, you know, and um, they negotiated that and they got that, and I, and it, I got to take advantage of it, you know, after I, um, after I got popped that time and got sent to Wayside, I, um, they told me that, um, you know, I, I, th I thought for sure I'd be fired, you know, I was just, Actually, my last drink, my last drunk was right before the cop. I was coming down. I was, there was a bar here in, um, in front of APU, Citrus and, and uh, Alasta. There was a pub, and it was Thursday night, you know, whatever, ladies' night special and stuff, you know. And, um, <laughs> and um, I was coming down Citrus, and I lived in West Covina back then. I was, gonna come, I was coming down Citrus, and I needed to make a ride on Arrow. I just, I was with a buddy in the car, and um, there was a cop car coming up, turning, making a left up the Citrus, and I almost didn't care. I was just going to go straight ram that cop car, you know what I mean? It's one of those crazy, I don't know. My friend's like, no, don't do it. You know? <laughs> I pulled on the handbrake, turned and did one of those drifts, you know? I'm like, whoa, that's pretty good, you know? So whatever, a quarter mile later, this cop car got me, you know? I, he comes up, you know, I had a big wad of gum, but he goes, spit that gum out. <laughs> 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 
run my place. And um, anyway, <laughs> that's how I got, that's my last drum, you know. And, um, so I was, I was in, um, I was in, um, wayside, like I said, a couple of weeks, maybe, I forget. Um, I know it was Cinco de Mayo when I was getting transported from county jail to um, wayside. And um, I was thinking, you know, in that black and white bus, you know, and back then there wasn't air conditioned, you know. And, um, in the crappiest jalopy car in the freeway going, I'd rather be in that car than this chained up to this, my new buddy, you know, <laughs> they get, getting taken up to the wayside, you know. Anyway, um, I got out. Before that, you know, I, um, we, my family already had planned a trip up to Canada. So between my first DUI and my second DUI, they had planned a trip there, and we were going I was going to go there. I, I got family in Toronto as well, so I was going to go there. <coughs> And um, they were, I was doing so well, they said that they were lining up to pay for my plane ticket. And I said, no, no, I'm paying for it. Don't worry. I got I got a little money, and I'll take care of it. And I did, you know. And um, what do I do? A couple weeks before that, I get to jail, you know. And um, well, when I got out of that jail, May 11, 1987, early in the morning, and you know, that's how you get released, you know, at night. You know, start the process like at whatever, nine o'clock. By the time I got out that early morning, I um, I made it to my brother's apartment. He had an apartment by LAX. I um, I took a long bath, <laughs> and um, I had a flight that morning, eight o'clock in the morning. That had been planned, like I said, a month or two before. I non-stop to Toronto, you know, and I remember being able to get out of jail at five. Make it to LA, my brother's apartment at six, and make it out of that flight by eight somehow. And I get there, and um, right, American Airlines, I remember, there's a bar in the middle there before you board. And, um, I go up there, whatever, seven o'clock, seven thirty, and I go, let me have a Long Island iced tea, you know. And I remember everyone at the bar is looking at me like, <laughs> this guy do it, you know. And I made sure it was Long Island iced tea, not regular iced tea, you know. Mm-hmm. Other people were having coffee and orange juice. And he, he makes it, you know, I pay for it, and I go, <sighs> that was my last drink. And uh, I didn't think it was going to be my last drink, otherwise I would have drank some more, you know. <laughs> in fact, when I got on that plane, that nonstop flight, five, six hours, I just laid down in the middle and slept. You know, I came, I woke up, and it was, I was in Canada already. And then, um, you know, I, of course, you know, that little reunion, my news, you know, what I've been up to was uh, fresh out of jail, you know what I mean? <laughs> no one ever went to jail for drinking, you know, and here's me, 21 years old. But I still had a bunch of people offering me, you know, hey, you can just mellow out out here, you know, somewhere. Canada, back to the Philippines, East Coast. But somehow I came back, you know, and um, I faced up, you know, and um, the company, the phone company sent me to a um, care unit. Back then in the 80s, that was real popular, you know, care unit outpatient. For six months, I had to go. And then, of course, the judge gave me probation for, I forget, suspended sentence, one-year court card, you know, and I'm like, dang, you know, I got to do all this, and he took my license, and I don't even get to drive my car, and I'm paying for it, and they, my family took my car away just so I don't drive it, you know, and I had to work, and I had to go to rehab, and I was able to do it, taking the bus from West Covina to Armani, and then um, got my license back and got to drive again. But in between that, you know, the 
care unit people. Well, the psychiatrist took me in and um, said, um, did the intake, you know? And then they let me out in the group that first night. We were around the group, half a dozen of us or so, and they were all, you know, identifying themselves. Hi, my name is whatever, and I'm alcoholic, addict, whatever they were. And it was my turn. I just said, oh, yeah, my name is Bob. What are you here for? I'm just here, you know, the judge sent me. I told him. If I could have told him I was visiting, I would have, you know what I mean? But <laughs> the psychiatrist doctor who just did my intake goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Bob's confused, you know what I mean? <laughs> he doesn't know it yet, but he's an alcoholic. <laughs> for now, we'll just call him a walking drugstore. I'm like, oh, shit, I don't like that, you know? But, um, so anyway... I stuck it out there. I wasn't drinking, and um, I wasn't juicing either. And then um, they told me I have to go to a meeting. And I'm like, well, AA meeting? A year ago, and the judge gave me some guy at my work, you know, my work, my office mates knew that I had gotten that ticket or whatever. I had to go to AA. So I asked this one guy, hey, um, this AA deal, what is it? You know, he goes, oh, yeah. That's a bunch of older guys they meet in the back of a church, you know. <laughs> They smoke a lot of cigarettes and they drink coffee, you know, and, um, and they say personal things about themselves, he's told me, you know. And I'm like, really? Like, I care. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they want you to say personal things about yourself. And I'm like, really? What the heck do they care? You know, yeah. And, uh, and you think that's bad, he said. At the end of the thing, you hold hands and pray, Bob. I think mean, that's no way. I ain't going there. You know what I mean? So, anyway. So finally, I had to be going to AA because the care unit was going to kick me out. The probation was going to report me to the judge. But finally, the last weekend that I had to get my card signed, my family drops me off. Big book study, West Covina, Cameron and Azusa, a meeting that Jean Barnes started. A bunch of you guys remember Jean Barnes, you know? And she was on my first meeting. That's why I used to come to the Friday night meeting at Glen Kirk because I knew when Jean was going there because I'd always come up to her and it's always nice to see her, you know, and um, she's seen me come in, and um, she knows, she knows me, you know. In fact, the, the story I say is um, the first meeting I was at, it was a big book study, kind of like what we had at Glenkirk, you know, they'd go around the room, you know, it was my turn to either read or share, and all I said was, no speak English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how much I wanted to belong, you know. <laughs> I was hoping I'd never see any of you guys again, you know? <laughs> but, uh, someone said, you just did outside. <laughs> but uh, I think Gene said, oh, no, no, don't worry. If he doesn't want to share, it's okay. Let him go. Let him go. Anyway, I remember <laughs> a few months later, I was going to go back to that meeting just to apologize and say, no, no, really. <laughs> but then you asked full of it. You know what I mean? I met my first sponsor at that meeting, though, a guy named Manuel Rivera, Jay, and um. He told me, Bob, I'm here for long-term sobriety. If you want long-term sobriety like me, I go to a men's stack, Dark Ellen, 12 by 12, Thursday nights. I go, Manuel, I'm just here for a court card. Who's talking about long-term? You know what I mean? I ain't talking long-term. <laughs> Six months, maybe learn how to drink like a gentleman, get this care unit off my back, maybe a year at the most, just because of this court card that the judge don't send me back. I remember either two or three years for the probation, suspended sentence, whatever. Just, I don't want to go back to jail, you know. And, um, and somehow I made it to that 12 by 12 stag meeting in um, Park Ellen. 
That's where I met, like I said, um, Bruce, a bunch of other guys, Richard Cheney, that they were talking about, um, a bunch of other guys that were from here back then. Les would remember, you know, that's one of the biggest meetings on a Saturday night, especially that speaker's meeting they had. They had the heavy hitters. So I'd listen to their tape, you know, Chuck Chamberlain. I remember hearing his son speak with his with um, Chuck Chamberlain's wife, Elsa, you know. I seen him her there, and um, Norm Alpey's wife, I, you know, Norm Alpey passed away already, but I'd listen to their tapes, and I'd go up to the spouse, the widows, you know, afterwards and go, hey, uh, you know, I really like how Norm spoke and all that, you know, and um, I remember Betty Alfie would tell me, you know, he's just another drunk like you, doing this thing one day at a time, passing on what was passed on to him. Don't put him on no pedestal. I go, wow, that's something else, you know. I'm so fortunate that I ran into those guys at the, I've made it to that meeting for years, you know, 15 years about, and um, going to that, because it was right close by where I lived. Bruce lived close by. Another guy, Jim Andrews, lived close by. A bunch of guys would be living up here and going down there. So um, I made, got involved in a lot of H&I, you know. We used to do panels in Glendora Jail. So I'm, I don't know if Brian's still around, but, uh, you know, I remember he was coming around here. It's always nice to see him, too, you know, old man Brian. Um, he's still smoking. I'm like, what the heck are you doing, <laughs> Brian? You know, still smoking. And, um... So um, it's always good to see that, you know, even Les, you know, Les knew my long-term sponsor, Kenny Lewis, you know, and um, Jimmy Draper and them guys. But um, one day at a time, you know, this program that I, <laughs> I'd be the last person back then. I remember I had like a, they had me do a 15-minute deal at Lark Ellen Saturday night one time, after a couple of years maybe, you know. And it must have sounded like my exit strategy in this program, you know? <laughs> like, sometimes you hear it with people, you know? Oh, that sounds like they're going to go out pretty soon, you know what I mean? They're planning it, it's there, and they, soon enough they do. It seemed like that's what I was maybe thanking them. Thank you for the past couple years, you know? <laughs> I think I'm well now. I'm going to move I'm gonna move on down, to, you know, get back to the gutter where I belong, you know? That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, couple of guys come up to me and goes, Bob, a couple old timers, you know, and they were the, they were at the WW2, they tell me, the big war, you know, we were there in the Philippines when you were, you know, the war, when you talk about drinking that coconut still, that's more potent than white lightning, they tell me, all you have to do is touch it and you're alcoholic, Bob, so you belong here, don't tell me you don't belong here, dude. and I believe them, you know, and um, there's something else. Um, 20 years ago, I moved up here. I got married, and um, and now we have two boys, you know, um, 20 and um, 18. And I see them, and you know, I see myself, you know, the way I was when I was their age. And it's something, but for the grace of God, you know, I mean, I don't know how grateful and how I could ever, to me, the only way I could think is some. Um, that higher power that we found, that the book is read, it's written so we can find it through the steps. That purpose of this meeting, seeing everyone, staying, practicing the principles, passing on what was passed on to me, you know, and just seeing that um, one day at a time, if we 
if we are just show up and don't pick up that drink. Don't bend that elbow, they used to say. I was bending the elbow. Yeah, don't drink. You know what I mean? It gets better. Inevitably. No matter what, it gets better. Hi, good evening. My name is Tony. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. And, uh, you know, I've been, my home group is the uh, sick, lame, and lazy. And uh, I qualify in all areas. So I'm glad to be here tonight, and I'm glad to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, quite a while ago, I had a real problem with alcohol. I spent a lot of years drinking. But those last five years were really, really rough. You know, I went through a period of my life where I enjoyed having a, a drink. And I enjoyed being with friends. And I was able to be a part of it. And then at some point in time, it moved from a, from a position of where I wanted to have a drink to where I had to have a drink. And at that time, it became a chore. I stepped over that line where, you know, I started to have fun to a point to where I couldn't get to where I wanted to get to in terms of, of being loaded. And I spent a lot of years chasing that. But more importantly, I spent a lot of years being alone and lost. And I could be in a room just like this, and I'd be all by myself. And you could be sitting right next to me, and we could be having a conversation, and I wouldn't give a shit about you. And what you were doing as long as I was drinking. And I spent my whole day planning my drinks and where I was going to get the next one. And I was one of those functional alcoholics, you know, so you think. Nobody knows. Did a lot of drinking in the garage, you know, going out to get something, going, always going out to fix something. And there was always a bottle out there. Hell, I worked down in L.A. near Glendale. I lived up in Santa Clarita, Santa Clarita at the time. I used to drive home at lunch to drink. That's 30 miles. Sometimes I would go home just so I could pick up a bottle to fill up the bottle that was in the kitchen so my wife wouldn't know how much I drank the night before. You know? So I was a hell of a planner. But I put myself in a position where I, where I was all worn out. And I got to a point where... You know, you go through all those things when you when you read the book, you, you know, you, you change brands of, of booze, you try to get in shape, you do all kinds of different things to try to help yourself because you know you got a problem, but you don't want to admit it. And then at some point in time, I was lost and all alone, and I was looking for help. And I put myself in a spin drive. And at the time, I wanted to learn how to drink like a gentleman. You know, I wasn't quite ready to admit that I had a problem. And I spent 30 days in there. Then I came out and I got into a night program. And and I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I first walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was scared to death. And I sat and I went to this place called the Rafters up in Santa Clarita. And uh, it was a lot like the 502. I call it a high-class 502 club because it was on the second floor of a place. 
But the difference between the way the people looked in that room and the way I felt was completely different. I could see it in their eyes that they felt, well, they were looking for something different. And I, I could understand that they had something that I wanted. But in the meantime, I started drinking in between meetings. And I asked the guy to sponsor me. And I went to, he told me to go to a meeting every day. And he'd be at three or four of those meetings. And I'd be drinking in between. And one day he came up to me and he put his finger in my chest and he said, look, Tony, until you can learn to be honest with yourself, why don't you go out there and keep drinking? Because what we try to do here is get sober. And there's a program here for you if you want it. And that's the most important meeting that I ever had with an individual. But let me tell you about the guys that were in that group that I joined up there. And I went to a meeting every day, seven days a week, after I decided that I wanted what you had. And there were guys there that would spend time. There was a guy there named Art. And every time that I walked into the meeting, he'd shake my hand. There was another guy named John. And when I was leaving, he'd say, keep coming back. And there was another guy named Vic, and he'd say, hey, you want to get a cup of coffee? After the meeting. And we sat down and we talked. And the thing about Vic is he had 45 days. And I had one. And he got me a job as a coffee commitment on a Saturday morning meeting where 60 or 70 men came for a meeting. And I kept that job for about six months, and then they wanted me to give it up, and I didn't want to give it up. You know, because it made me feel a part of it. And I got another sponsor after this guy fired. My first sponsor fired me best guy that I ever worked with. And my sponsor took me through the steps in the book. We read the book. The first thing he told me to do is read the book, the 100, first 164 pages. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to underline every place that you see yourself. There's a lot of underline in that book. And there still is. And every time I use that book, I... If I underline something else, I write the date in the column. Because I'm still learning. I'm still trying to understand that there's a better way to live. And I've had a lot of men and women in my life that have helped me see different things. But I can tell you the most important thing that happened to me in, in Alcoholics Anonymous is I found a God of my understanding. I found a power greater than myself that I could turn my problems over to. Now, a lot of guys, some that most of you don't know me that well, but there's a few guys here that do know me, and I've been through uh, an interesting year, if you would say that. And I was able to walk through that because of Alcoholics Anonymous and because of the ability to turn things over and ask for help. And also having enough, I guess, understanding that it's a lot easier to talk to somebody when I got a problem than to let it fester and sit. And Alcoholics Anonymous has given me a life that I could never, ever have dreamt of. The other part of Alcoholics Anonymous that I think is important is, is to be of service, to be there for somebody else. And sometimes it's just a matter of 
being like Art was and shaking your hand when you walk in the door. And sometimes it's like John telling that guy or that lady, keep coming back. We got a chair for you. We'll be here for you. Or you're in the room and you see somebody and you can tell because you can see in their eyes where you've been. And you just walk up and say, hey, you want to get a cup of coffee? Or how are you doing? And I don't care if that person's brand new in the program or if he's been in there 40 years. We're all the same. Life changes, and we have to change with it. And I learned from Alcoholics Anonymous that you can change every day. But I think it takes a couple of things. It takes the ability to get up in the morning and thank God for the day I have in front of me and ask for help. That maybe I don't pick up a drink today. I also ask that I could be there for somebody else. Make me a different man. Make me a better person today. And at the end of the day, I thank him for a great day. And to me, today, because I'm sober, today, we'll wait and see what happens tomorrow. But because I'm sober today, today's a beautiful day. Every day is a great day for me. Well, thanks for letting me share. All right, tonight...